0: I don't know why I got hype all of a sudden. I was really tired after the chiropractor, and like 15 minutes ago, I got really amped. Maybe it's the cider? Because normally I just shoot it, but I put it in a drink this time.
1: You're quite loud. I'm not (laughs) saying that's a bad thing. I'm just... Because I'm I'm louding. Because you're you're amped.
0: Because I'm amped. Hold on. I can turn it down.
1: We can do this all day. Episode 19. Spider-Man Homecoming review. You ready, partner?
0: Rock and roll, buckaroo.
1: Hi, this is Mark.
0: And this is Emily. And
1: And we we can can do do this this all day. day. A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions. Things we liked, things we didn't like, everything in between we hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line well by the time most of you are listening to this i pretty much guarantee it will be 2022 so happy new year everybody hope your holidays went well hi emily hello it's only been like about four weeks since we actually recorded a show but for some reason it feels a lot longer than that
0: well those holidays they get you
1: and hopefully, hopefully what you're listening to sounds of reasonably good quality or at least you know, somewhat equal or on par with what you're used to because I edited this thing. So, yay. Yay, me. Thank you. Thank you. So, we've been gone for a little while, uh, but we are back.
0: I know we're not doing MCU news, but we should mention, in our timeline, Hawkeye is currently running. And it's great. We have
1: just... We just, yeah, episode, as of, uh, as of, we're recording this episode on December the 3rd. So the third episode of Hawkeye dropped this week's, unable, you know, of course be done by the time y'all are listening to this. I'm having a really good time. This might even be my favorite show so far in all the Marvel shows.
0: It's really, really good.
1: Because I love, I love Falcon and the Winter Soldier. That was my favorite going into this one, but Hawkeye is kind of rapidly taking over the number one spot. It's just, it's just, just, just too darn good.
0: I like it because I've never seen myself in someone so much as in Kate Bishop.
1: Kate, B- Kate Bishop, the living embodiment of Emily Griswold. <laughs> Emily Griswold with a bow and arrow.
0: Truly, though, a bow and arrow and a really sweet penthouse in New York.
1: You need uh, you if you don't you don't have pizza cats though, do you? No. You have, if you they ate
0: have... pizza, they would probably die or get you very have, sick.
1: You have uh, Christmas tree climbing cats, or one, well, at least one Christmas tree climbing cat.
0: It's both of them.
1: We are plowing through phase three of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And so tonight, we provide our review of Spider-Man Homecoming, which opened in U.S. theaters on July the 7th, 2017. It stars Tom Holland, Robert Downey Jr., Michael Keaton, Zendaya, Jacob Badalon, Marissa Tomei, John Favreau, Laura Harrier, Tony Revolori, Bokeem Woodbine, Donald Glover, and time Daily. The movie was directed by Tom Watts. Watts was a relatively unknown director, having only directed two feature films at that time, Clown and Cop Car, neither of which really did anything. He's now become a staple of the MCU, having also directed this film's two sequels, and he's going to be directing the MCU reboot of Fantastic Four, which, as I've said on numerous occasions, I'm very much looking forward to seeing Story by Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly. They also contributed to the screenplay, along with John Watts, Christopher Ford, Chris McKenna, and Eric Summers. At the box office, on a budget of $175 million, the film grossed over $880 million. That may not be a billion dollars, but it's certainly not chump change either. And that puts uh, Spider-Man Homecoming squarely in the middle of the MCU box office rankings, just above Guardians of the Galaxy Vol. 2, which we will rev- be reviewing next time, and just below Thor Ragnarok. The road to making this film was a very long one, primarily because the first hurdle was getting the Spider-Man character into the MCU in the first place. Give you a little bit of comic book history here. Many, many years ago. Decades, in fact. There was a time when Marvel Entertainment was not the money-making juggernaut that it is today. In fact, they filed for bankruptcy back in 1996. But even before that, not expecting their properties to become what they've become thanks to the MCU, Marvel sold off the film rights to pretty much whoever wanted them at the time. That's why the film rights to Spider-Man got bought by Sony, X-Men and the Fantastic Four went to Fox, The Incredible Hulk went to Universal, etc., etc. Marvel got the rights to the FF and the X-Men when uh, Disney bought Fox. Universal apparently still has rights to any standalone Hulk movie, which is why Hulk is allowed to appear in all these other MCU things, and that's why they're allowed to do a She-Hulk show on Disney+, Plus, coming up later this year. So that just left Spidey, and it was very unlikely that Sony was going to give him up. He's arguably the most popular and recognizable of all the Marvel Comics characters, and his previous films with Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield, despite some mixed quality issues involved in those films, had made them a ton of cash. Long story made short, Sony Pictures and Marvel Studios came to an agreement in early 2015 to co-create and co-produce a new Spider-Man film, with Sony having full creative control, as well as control over marketing and distribution they agreed to introduce the character in an earlier MCU film, which of course turned out to be Captain America Civil War. Tom Holland was cast, and the rest is history. I don't think Emily and I have made a big secret about the fact that this is not one of our favorite Marvel movies. And I've for a while, I had a hard time articulating exactly why that was the case for me, until I started reviewing the film for this show. I had always just simply never really liked it that much. But now I think I can explain why. I think. First off, the pacing. There's just, I don't, to me, there's just something really off with the pacing in this movie, especially with regard to most of the action sequences. Everything just tends to happen very, very quickly. And the characters talk over the action, trying to explain things just a little too fast for me to keep up. For example, I think two of my least favorite scenes in the movie are or when Peter's being dragged through the street after he leaves Liz's party, and the fight on the plane at the end of the movie. The action in those scenes is just so frenzied and chaotic that it's just, I don't find it very enjoyable. The Washington Monument scene, by contrast, is much easier to follow because there's not all this constant you know crashing of things and things blowing up everywhere. Second of all, while I understand how this movie necessarily had to be a high school slash teen movie because Peter Parker is a teenager and you know that's his life. In a way, it almost takes away from the more dramatic, higher stakes stuff, you know, like, like dealing with the vulture. They, they do all the high school antics and the teen angst stuff really, really well. They really do. Don't get me wrong. But at times it feels like all of that was done at the expense of the more kind of comic booky action danger plot stuff. It feels like that part was much more rushed or watered down. Having said that, I, I love Tom Holland as Peter Parker and I love Jacob Badalone as Ned. I love Zendaya as Michelle. I love Michael Keaton's performance as Adrian Toomes, even though I have some quibbles with how the writers and producers handled his motives for doing what he does. And we'll get into that later in the show. I don't know. Maybe Spider-Man homecoming is a good film, but it's only a mediocre Marvel movie to me.
0: I didn't think too deeply about why I don't like it. Like when I was writing my notes, I would watch a part and then I would read ahead in the plot that you had written and think, okay, yeah, I don't have anything to say. And I would just let the movie run. Like I didn't have anything to add. It wasn't interesting. And I've never really thought it was interesting. I was actually really disappointed in this movie because I wanted Mm -hmm. it to be good. Yeah. Because I I really liked Andrew Garfield's Spider-Man.
1: Yeah, I did too.
0: Like, over Tobey Maguire, I thought the Tobey Maguire Spider-Mans were kind of dumb. <laughs> Someone's going to come after me for yeah. that. But I liked the Andrew Garfield movies, and I thought, like, you know, a cute, sort of pitiful-looking teenage white boy, I can do that. But there was just something about this movie that wasn't that good. And I mean, thankfully, I think Far From Home is outstanding, and I hope No Way Home is even better. Mm -hmm. But this one, I was just, like, disappointed.
1: No, I agree. That was, I remember, I actually, I I, I fell asleep during this one in the theater. I saw it on opening weekend, and I know there were a couple points at which I dozed off. And I I still remember kind of walking out of there like, oh, 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 okay. You know, I, I didn't hate it. But it's like, it was just, it was just kind of, and then I remember rewatching it. I didn't see it again in the theater, but I remember, you know, getting it on, on, you know, Blu-ray or whatever, three or four months later. And I watched it again and I've seen the movie, like I've seen the movie like 10 times in the, you know, like four and a half years since it's been out. And it's like, I keep, keep wanting to find something in it to make me go, Oh, I get it. And admittedly, you know, maybe this past, cause I was watching it much more critically. I, I, I found kind of like one or two things that, you know, made me appreciate it a little bit more. But overall, yeah, you know, I just don't, yeah, I, I had a hard time coming up with stuff to write in my notes too. It wasn't until after the fact. I, you know, I'd watched, you know, a big chunk of the movie and then like two days later something would pop into my head. And like, oh, yeah, I guess I could talk about that. I kind of thought about that. But, <clears throat> but it was kind of like, you know, there wasn't like a whole lot of urgency at the time to comment on it. And that yeah. probably, you know, so we both had that feeling. So that probably says something.
0: It was just kind of boring. Like there was so much plot, there was so much happening, but it, like nothing happened.
1: Yeah, yeah that's a great time. way that's a great way to describe. There's a lot happening but at the same time nothing happening. And it just kind of feels like it was kind of like yeah, we kind of get the the, you know, the the funny John Hughesian kind of, you know, high school antics stuff. But then there's this bit with the vulture and stolen weapons and you know all these these you know stuff blowing up and uh, yeah the, and the, the I kind of just kind of got lost and you know and there's like you no Tony Stark is in there and you know you know you can argue you can make an argument you know what the hell is he doing And in then there it becomes
0: the Tony Stark show, which you know a, I have a problem with.
1: Becomes the Tony Stark show for, you know, a couple sections of the movie and but but anyway. So bottom line, you know, neither Emily or I particularly like this movie but it's the mcu and we review those movies so we're here to talk about it i have it in my i mean in my rankings you know we've got there now was was it 25 including eternals i can't remember now
0: i think it's 25
1: i think it's 25 now i've got uh it might be 20 yeah i think it's 25 um so i've got this like way the heck down at 23 is like just above Incredible Hulk and just below Iron Man three, so it's it's pretty it's pretty low on that list.
0: I have it at so I guess I should preface this with my lowest ranked movie right now is number twenty because I'm gonna push things back. I didn't want to give anybody the last worst spot because I would have felt bad if I just straight out of the gate said Incredible Hulk's the worst MCU movie. <laughs> you know, I want to give it a chance.
1: And you haven't, you haven't seen all of them yet. Yeah.
0: And so I put Spider-Man Homecoming at 14. Um, Captain Marvel is at 12 for reference. And then Iron Man three is at 15.
1: Mm -hmm. So
0: there's nothing in the 13 spot yet. Yet. It'll get there.
1: And we're going to dive right in. In the aftermath of the Chitauri invasion of New York, as seen in Avengers, Adrian Toomes's salvage company is contracted to help clean up the city. They find a considerable amount of alien technology during the cleanup. Unfortunately for them, their salvage operation is taken over by the newly formed Department of Damage Control, a joint venture between Stark Industries and the federal government. They are ordered to cease operations and turn over any sensitive equipment or technology that they have salvaged. Outraged by this treatment, and the fact that they are now all out of jobs very suddenly, they decide to secretly hang on to the Chitari technology that they've squirreled away. Eight years later, they have amassed quite a cache of high-tech weapons and gear fashioned out of Chitari tech, which they are selling on the black market. Among other creations is Toomes' armored vulture flight suit. Well, Tony's done gone and pissed off someone else royally again. <laughs> it's already the Tony show. It's like the first five minutes of this movie. It's already the Tony show.
0: I do like that we're starting to see, or continuing to see, more real-life consequences of the Avengers Tony (laughs) behavior. (laughs) Um, I know that they've been trying to push it, obviously, since the first Avengers, but I do feel like this is one of the few movies that really acknowledges that there's a world outside of superheroes and someone's going to have to pick up the pieces and get their act together. Also, I mean, some jerks from the feds talking smack about and taking the best job I ever got. That would probably make me a villain, too. I get it.
1: And, you know, I, I want to sort of piggyback on what you said. There's a the whole one of the reasons that Spider-Man has always been a very popular character in Marvel is because he's kind of that, you know, one of those ground level heroes that's not not always out you know saving the whole world or saving the whole city or anything like that. He's 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 just as just as much involved in you know, stopping bank robberies and, you know, purse snatchers and things like that. And you do, you know, to an extent, you do get a really good sense of that in this movie. It's, you know, they wanted to make a departure from, you know, kind of the big, you know, epic destruction kind of thing of of the Avengers and so forth. So I give them credit for that.
0: Well, and we are, I am getting ahead of myself here, but it does seem like Peter in this universe is the only person who sort of pays for being a superhero. Mm-hmm. Like Cap doesn't pay for it. Tony benefits from it surely. Yeah. Thor was already a hero. Maybe Hulk, a little bit because mm-hmm. like he can't live a normal life without being noticed. But Peter is the one character that being a superhero, while fun and interesting and cool, is like actively harmful yeah. to his daily life.
1: And that's you know, and that's always going to be. That's just that's how Peter Parker is. the you know they he ref, they refer to it in the comics as the Parker luck. He just he can never cut a break anytime he every you know every time he does the right it's it's kind of the no good deed goes unpunished. um aphorism kind of multiplied by ten. you know every good thing he does ends up being greeted by you know ten really bad consequences. and that's just how Peter Parker is. and they do a really good job kind of showing that in this movie too, I think. After the Marvel logos roll, we flash back to several images, framed as a video diary, of Peter Parker's participation in the events of Civil War, most notably the battle at the Leipzig airport. We see him bugging Happy Hogan on the Stark Industries private jet headed to Germany.
0: Why does the plane beep and unlock like a car? (laughs) I don't think that's what planes do.
1: Because Tony Stark. (laughs) We see his excitement as he gets the Tony-upgraded Spider-Man suit and we see glimpses of the airport battle from Peter's perspective. Upon his return to Queens, he's excited about his next mission, but Tony tells him he's not ready to be an Avenger just yet. He tells Peter that Happy will call him when they're ready for him.
0: If any movie in the MCU makes Tony a completely unsympathetic character, it's gotta be this one.
1: Yeah, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later, so I won't say a whole lot more now, but I agree. All I can say after this is that after having done not one but two Spider-Man origin stories, I am so thankful that Sony decided to spare us Spidey's origin story in this one. everyone already, everyone already knows he was bitten by a radioactive spider by now and you know I, I don't need to see I don't need to see Uncle Ben die a third time. Uh, I don't care about great power and great responsibility. I'm really am thankful that they just decided to jump in there and assume everyone knows how that all got started. Two months later, Peter is still waiting for that call from Happy. He's been going about his days as a a student at Midtown School of Science and Technology, hanging out with his best friend Ned, his new friend Michelle, ogling a girl he likes, Liz, and going about the neighborhood as Spider-Man after school, foiling various petty crimes and giving directions to lost old ladies.
0: I wonder if maybe one of the reasons this movie isn't my favorite is because, to me, it relies too heavily on the fact that he's a high school student. I know he's still in school in the next movie, but they're on vacation, so I think it's different. And ideally, I'd like to never set foot in a high school again. Um, But that being said, I do like his academic decathlon team, especially that kid who uses the bell as a punchline (laughs) to his jokes. And doesn't the teacher say, like, we don't use the bell for comedic purposes? But that's funny. Every time. Additionally, another favorite moment in this movie is during this sort of showing his regular life is when he's at the bodega and he's ordering his sandwich and the guy starts to talk about Aunt May in Spanish and Peter replies back in Spanish. And the guy gets (laughs) all like New York mad. Yeah,
1: that's very that's that's a very that just strikes me as a very Peter Parker thing. And so I really did enjoy that. And it's a very New York sort of thing, too, I suppose. But yeah, the bit with the bell is funny. Like, yeah, and I got a hot date with Black Widow. Ding! That is false!
0: (laughs) (laughs) Those are funny every time.
1: I think the high school, you know, the John Hughes film thing is is kind of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it, it lends us a perspective that we've never seen in an MCU movie before, which is, you know, always refreshing. But on the other hand, while we may not have seen it in the MCU before... We've seen it in other places for sure, you know, the, everything from Buffy the Vampire Slayer to, you know, for those of you who watch, you know, the CW's uh, DC DC Comics stuff, the the, the new Girl show, which I actually really do like, is kind of the same thing, uh, probably done better. And for me, somehow, you know, the juxtaposition of high school and the grown-up problems of the MCU, I don't know, for some reason it's a little jarring in this movie. Plus, it seems to lend itself too much to the, you know, the fast-paced, people-talking-real-fast, mad-cat antics of, you know, of kids kind of tropes that, that just personally don't resonate with me. One evening, however, he foils a bank robbery by a group of men dressed in crappy Avengers masks and wielding some very high-tech weapons. He calls Happy to let him know, but Happy is too busy overseeing the final move from Avengers Tower to the new compound in upstate New York, And blows Peter off. Peter's backpack containing his clothes, which he webbed in an alley before starting his patrol, has been stolen, so he sneaks into his bedroom at his Aunt May's apartment. Unaware, until it's too late, that Ned is waiting for him there, Peter swears the awestruck Ned to absolute secrecy. Can I be your guy in the chair? (laughs) The whole bit with Ned catching Peter and him constantly asking Peter all sorts of silly questions afterward may be my most favorite part of the film. Because let's face it, if either you or I found out the other person was a superhero, you know we would, not, we would totally do that.
0: <laughs> you know how in some movies and TV shows someone gets powers or becomes a superhero and everyone in their life is suddenly super cold and angsty about it? I've never understood that. Like, if my friend became a superhero, you can bet your entire life savings that I would become, like, the soft, normal human sidekick. No doubt.
1: <laughs> I would totally, I would totally love to be your guy in the chair, which is kind of funny seeing how I've never even edited one of our podcasts before, and suddenly I would be, you know, your guy in the chair. Maybe that makes it even funnier.
0: I think it does. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Pathos. When they overhear in gym class that Liz has a crush on Spider-Man, Ned makes a probably ill-advised comment that prompts Peter's high school nemesis, Flash Thompson, to tell him that Liz is throwing a big party that weekend and, mockingly, urges Peter to come along with his quote-unquote friend Spider-Man.
0: I think the most memified thing from this movie are those Captain America gym class videos that their gym teacher plays. Mm-hmm. Also, the comment about Steve being a war criminal now is "war criminal now" is so good. Pretty sure this guy is a war criminal now, but I have to show these videos. It's required by the state.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I th- the the PSAs were the PSAs were pretty funny. Um, it was kind of a nice opportunity for Chris Evans to to be a little less to be a little less stoic. I'm sure he enjoyed that.
0: Also, I never noticed before, but when the girls are playing F Mary Kill with the Avengers and they start talking about Spider Man, one of them says, You don't know what he looks like. He could be seriously burned. Is that a dig at Deadpool?
1: I guess it is. Um, I think Deadpool was already out by then. Yeah, yeah, But Deadpool that like, like
0: exists, you know, in general. Like maybe well, it was like a comic dig or It was probably
1: it was probably a comic dig, yeah. Or you know, or a fox dig since this was pre since this is pre Fox sale. But uh, yeah, that's that, that, that could be. That could very well be a dig at Deadpool. Peter and Ned go to the party. Peter is wearing the spider suit under his clothes, and he discreetly leaves to figure out a way for Spider-Man to make an appearance at the party.
0: Ned, Spider-Man isn't a party trick. I'm just going to be myself. Peter, nobody likes that. Ouch, Ned. Like, I know what he meant. I know he meant well, but still.
1: The truth hurts, doesn't it? While outside... He spots a strange blue explosion in the distance and closes in on it to investigate. He discovers two members of Toombs' crew, Jackson Bryce, a.k.a. The Shocker, and Herman Schultz, attempting to sell alien tech-based weapons to local criminal Aaron Davis. Peter intervenes and ends up chasing Bryce and Schultz and their van throughout the suburbs, causing significant damage along the way. He's about to catch the van when Toombs arrives in his flying vulture suit and grabs Peter. He drops him in a nearby lake. Before he has a chance to drown, he's rescued by an Iron Man suit, being flown remotely by Tony, who was actually overseas. Despite Peter's protestations, Tony urges him to not get involved with the vulture, because he's getting in way over his head with such heavy-duty criminals. While making his way back to the party, Peter finds the active remains of one of the weapons being hawked by Bryce and Schultz. I really found this scene anticlimactic. There's just something to me, not funny about watching a not yet ready, Peter get ridden roughshod over and being, you know, cluelessly bounced around like a rag doll. I kind of feel like we've seen this before, you know, like, uh, like maybe the airport fight in civil war. Toombs, Bryce, and Schultz return to their base, where Toombs confronts Bryce about using the weapons indiscreetly out in the open. Bryce blows him off, so Toombs kicks him out of the crew. When Bryce threatens to talk, Toombs accidentally kills him with one of the weapons and gives Bryce's weapon to Schultz, who is now the new Shocker. You know, Toombs may not have been intending to kill Bryce, but he doesn't seem terribly shook up about it once it happens.
0: I was thinking about this because I saw your note. I don't feel like it was an accident. <laughs> like, I know he sort of plays off the, like, oh, I thought that was the anti-gravity gun. But what's the anti-gravity gun going to do when you don't want the guy to talk? Like, I don't think it's going to torture him, really. It's just going to discombobulate him.
1: No, you pick him up, like, 20 feet and then drop him. I guess. Maybe.
0: I think he was... I think he did it on purpose. I think okay. he knew what
1: Because he... that's kind of the other thing. It's kind of what... what... I mean, maybe I should save this for later on, but it's, this is another thing about tombs that kind of, that kind of bothers me. It's it's sort of, you know, I mean, how, I mean, just there must have been, there must be like some sort of like, you know, like hidden, like, like really, really deep seated dark side to this guy, because, you know, I mean, he, it seems like he makes a, a pretty quick turn from, you know, hey, I'm a guy who runs a salvage company to, I'm willing to kill people to, you know, make money selling stolen weapons it just seems like a bit of a it just seems like a bit of a jump to me peter and ned examine the weapon in shop class determining that it combines both alien and human technology their tampering with it accidentally causes a brief energy discharge from the weapon which draws schultz and another member of tombs's crew to the school looking for it while they are there peter is able to place a tracker on schultz he and Ned monitor the tracker over the course of several hours, and, after it moves around the area quite a bit, it seems to settle somewhere in Maryland. Peter rejoins the academic decathlon team, which he quit earlier in the film to per- to pursue his crime-fighting activities, as they are preparing to go to a tournament in Washington, D.C., which is, as Emily and I very well know, close to Maryland.
0: Maryland? What's there? I don't know. Evil Lair? There are definitely some evil layers here.
1: The Decathlon team arrives in D.C. Peter talks a very reluctant Ned into using his laptop to disable the tracker in the spider suit, as well as enable the other features in the suit that are currently restricted by Tony's training wheels protocol. That night, he sneaks out and follows the tracker he planted on Schultz. It leads him to a gas station where Toombs and his crew are hitting a convoy, transporting tech away from the still-being-sifted-through wreckage of the Triskelion. Peter engages tombs, but ends up getting knocked out and trapped inside one of the transport vehicles. When he comes to, he busts out of the truck only to discover that he's still trapped in a damage-controlled deep storage vault. While rooting through the contents of the vault in hopes of engineering a way out, he discovers another glowing object like the one he picked up the night of the party, and which Ned is currently carrying with him. The AI in the spider suit, now named Karen, says it's a Chitari explosive device. Unable to reach Ned, Peter is eventually able to open the doors and hitch a ride back to DC so he can warn Ned about the explosives. As I referred to at the top of the show, there's something wrong with the pacing of this movie. From the moment Peter sneaks out of the hotel to the moment he reaches the Washington Monument the next day, it feels like it's only been like 5 minutes. The fight in the, tr- the fight on the truck, the bit at the gas station where Peter is learning about the suit's capabilities, the time in the vault. It's like they glossed over a ton of story really quickly, and it just kind of took me out of the film. Peter arrives in D.C. just as the Decathlon team has won its meet without him.
0: Imagine being someone who's just like viewing all of this Peter Parker stuff from the outside and not knowing that Peter is Spider-Man. I would be so mad at him for ditching out of everything. Like, all his excuses about the Stark internship and, oh, I'm sick or, oh, I have to quit. Like, obviously, you shouldn't make assumptions, but no one would assume that he's a superhero. They would just assume that he's a flake.
1: And I think that all gets, you know, later on in the movie, you know, after he ditches after he ditches the homecoming dance. That uh, all just kind of adds to this reputation. And again, it's that's Peter Parker for you. He's, you know... He's sacrificing his, his good name and his reputation at school in order to save the day. And it sucks, but that's what you gotta do. They're getting ready to celebrate with a visit to the Washington Monument. In order to go up the elevator, Ned passes his backpack through a security x-ray machine, which bombards the Chitari explosive with radiation, thus setting it off and damaging the elevator that the, that the decathlon team is in. Save Michelle, who stayed behind on the ground. Peter climbs to the top of the monument and, after a brief standoff with police helicopters and difficulty breaking the observation window, enters the monument. By then, all but Liz, Ned, and Mr. Harrington have been able to get out of the elevator, which then begins plummeting down the shaft uncontrollably. Peter jumps into the elevator car and is able to stop the car's descent. I do kind of like the stuff of Peter hanging onto the outside of the Washington Monument. He's hesitant because he's never been that high up before, and and the way they shoot the scene, you really do get a sense of just how high up he is, and I don't know. I mean, I'm a little afraid of heights, so I found it just a tiny bit frightening myself.
0: I do have a little bit of a hard time believing that he's scared of heights. He's Spider-Man. You know, like, in New York City, of all places, our buildings in D.C. are pretty puny compared to the buildings there, and I would know I was just there two weeks ago, and those buildings are distressingly tall. Also, with how long the Washington Monument was closed after the earthquake, imagine how long it's going to be closed after this.
1: Well, I'm trying to think, you know, you see him, you know, sort of swinging through the city, but it's not like, it's not like you see him, you know, shooting a web all the way up to the top of the Empire State Building or, you know, you know, you know, climbing up, climbing up the Freedom Tower or anything like that. So I don't know. I kind of, I kind of sympathize with him. That's. The top of the, yeah, I mean, yeah, most of our buildings are kind of puny, but the Washington Monument is one of the few sort of kind of tall ones, and I'd be, I'd be a little, I'd be kind of scared if I was hanging on to the outside of that. With Spider-Man now the talk of the town after his heroics in D.C., Peter and company return to New York. With Karen's help, Peter is able to identify and track down Aaron Davis. Davis tells Peter that he doesn't know who's in the vulture suit, but he does know that he plans on having a meet with a buyer named Matt Gargan, on the Staten Island ferry later that morning. Peter proceeds to the ferry and is able to apprehend Gargan with the help of the FBI who just happened to be there. But Toombs escapes. One of the Chitari weapons malfunctions and cuts the ferry in two, very nearly killing everyone on board. Peter is unable to save the ship himself, but Tony shows up in an Iron Man suit and prevents the ferry from sinking, saving all aboard. Tony confronts Peter about his recklessness and gives him a good talking to. As punishment for not following his instructions and for nearly getting a lot of people killed on the ferry, including Peter, Tony confiscates the spider suit. I don't think we covered this in our Civil War review, so I suppose now's as good a time as any to do so, since Tony touches upon it in this scene. Just what was he thinking recruiting a teenager to be a superhero? I mean, did he... Did he see himself in Peter or was he looking for a redemption project to make himself feel better after Ultron and Sokovia? It just seems awfully risky, you know, dropping dropping a minor into all of that mess. I mean, you'd think that, you know, with all the shield, all the information that shield probably had on superpowered beings, that Tony could have found someone, you know, a little older, a little more mature.
0: I think my problem with Tony recruiting Peter is that he basically ditches him immediately once the airport battle is done. He knows that he's an, that Peter's an enhanced person, a child no less, and then says, alright, well, good luck, I guess. This especially after the whole point of the Sokovia Accords and the whole reason for the airport fight in the first place was to control enhanced superheroes. Like, as a fan, I'm glad Tony recruited Peter because I like having Spider-Man in the universe, but from an actual universe perspective... Mm, tony's an idiot
1: <laughs> well you you well you bring up another another point did peter sign the accords i i don't think he did you know how come he didn't get thrown into the raft somehow i don't think you know i don't think you know secretary ross is just going to let some superpowered teenager be dropped back into greater new york city untethered i don't know maybe tony like cut some sort of a deal with him to have the government leave peter alone I don't know but it's just you know the kind of it just seems like Peter was able to circumvent the accords and you know it was okay to bring him on this mission and then take him back to Queens and that was the end of it that just seemed really really odd Peter reluctantly returns to life as not Spider-Man he's not happy about it but two positives result from it one he's paying more attention to his studies now and two he asks Liz out to the homecoming dance and she accepts we get the montage of Aunt May showing him how to dance and Peter watching a video on how to tie a Windsor knot. That's what I, That's the kind of knot I use when I wear a tie. May drops him off at Liz's house the evening of the dance, and Peter knocks on the front door. It is answered by Toombs, who does not recognize Peter. Toombs is, as everyone has now figured out, Liz's father. He ushers Peter in. Liz's mom comes over to greet him. And eventually, Liz enters the room. All the while, an extremely nervous Peter tries to act normally, but he's clearly not doing a very good job. His distractedness leads him to being inattentive of Liz, and she notices it. Toombs drives Peter and Liz to the dance, and in the course of the ride is able to deduce that Peter is Spider-Man. When they arrive at the school, Toombs sends Liz in ahead of Peter so he can confront him, under the pretense of giving him a the dad talk. He says he's letting Peter get away this time as thanks for saving Liz in Washington. But if he ever gets in the way of his business again, Tombs will kill him and anybody he loves. Now, I got to admit, I did not see that coming when I first saw this film. If they're following the comic book narrative of Peter Parker never being able to catch a break, having the girl he's got the hots for have a criminal mastermind for a father is very much on brand.
0: Yeah, I thought this was a really good twist in the movie. Of course, he's naturally terrified of meeting his date's father, but then he's also the baddie. And you're only 15, and you lost your fancy superhero suit. I'd be horrified.
1: Peter walks into the school in a daze. He approaches Liz, who asks him what her father said to him. Knowing full well that he's throwing away any chance of any future at all with Liz, Peter tells her, gotta go. I'm sorry. You don't deserve this. He then runs off to his secret hiding place under his locker, where he dons his old, homemade, pre-Tony Spider-Man suit. No sooner does he leave the building when he's confronted by Schultz, who beats him senseless in the school bus parking lot. Schultz is about to finish him off when Ned, who wandered into the lot and found one of Peter's web shooters lying on the ground, distracts Schultz long enough for Peter to web him up. Peter steals Flash's car.
0: Flash's dad's car, no less. (laughs)
1: And has Ned, his guy in the chair, locate his phone, which Peter left in Toombs' car earlier that night so they can track Toombs to his lair. When Ned relays to Peter the details of an all too brief phone conversation he has with Happy, Peter figures out that Happy is preparing to fly the last of the equipment out of Avengers Tower, and that Toombs plans to knock off the plane. And there's that pacing again. From the moment Peter takes off after apologizing to Liz, everything happens so quickly that I find it hard to keep track of what's going on. And this whole zany, frenetic pace with Peter kind of screeching whenever he gets into trouble. I don't know. It it just kind of annoys me and just, it just makes it harder for me to take the movie even slightly seriously. Peter arrives at Toomes' lair and confronts him. Toomes tells Peter that he does what he does for the good of his family. And because otherwise people like them, are stuck with the table scraps of the rich and powerful, like Tony Stark. Toombs then uses the vulture suit to collapse the building on top of Peter, leaving him for dead. Toombs then flies off to intercept the flight, leaving Avengers Tower. I really, really like Michael Keaton. I really do. I always have. But while I certainly think Adrian Toombs is one of the better MCU villains in terms of motivation and relatability... I don't necessarily consider him in the same echelon as, say, Killmonger or Loki or Zemo. I mean, you you get the entirety of his beef in the opening scene. But I feel like they waited too long in the movie to remind us again of why he's doing all this. To me, he just kind of exists in the in-between time as a run-of-the-mill bad guy. Admittedly, a very well-acted run-of-the-mill bad guy, but run-of-the-mill nonetheless.
0: I'll just toss in my agreement here. 100% spot on.
1: Oh, cool. Thanks. A seemingly defeated Peter manages to lift the rubble off of him and escape. I like this scene because it's the moment that Peter simultaneously makes two different realizations. A, that Tony was right and that he is in way over his head. I mean, just look at him trapped under that rubble. He's just, he's so completely... And utterly helpless under there. I mean, he's practically in tears. He's in such a low spot. And then B, despite that, he has to pull it all together and level up because, you know, the stakes are kind of high. And when he finally lifts that that HVAC or whatever that big thing is off of him, you're, you're, you're momentarily awestruck. Like, you know, wow, this guy is really that strong. Um, the scene pays homage to a scene in uh, a, a, couple, a couple of panels in Amazing Spider-Man number 33, written by Stan Lee and drawn by Steve Ditko, the co-creators of Spider-Man, where Spider-Man lifts, lifts a wreck building off of himself. I mean, he does have the proportional strength of a spider, and uh, to see that scene rendered as well as it was in this film was pretty neat for a comics fan like myself.
0: This is going to be relatable to, like, one other person but Peter's freak out under the rubble reminds me of in the Jesus Christ Superstar 2012 arena show when Jesus is on the cross at the end with everyone watching and mocking him and he freaks out and it's so sad and you feel so bad for him and Peter is obviously not Jesus but I've always found um, Holland's Peter Parker to be really sympathetic without being pitiful and I think that's something too that uh, Andrew Garfield did really well. Is that you were sympathetic towards him, but you didn't feel like he was this pitiful, sad little baby? Mm-hmm. But you were just like, oh man, that really sucks. Like I really feel for you.
1: And that's 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 the essence of Peter Parker. That's always been the essence of Peter Parker. It's like wow. It's like he does the right he does the right thing as much as he can, and things still things still go to hell. <laughs> Peter catches up to Tombs and discreetly webs himself to the vulture suit as he approaches the Stark plane. Toombs uses a high-altitude vacuum seal to attach himself to the underside of the plane and enter it. Meanwhile, Peter is hanging onto the plane for dear life. Toombs breaks into the automated cockpit and changes the plane's course. He also clones the plane's transponder signal and sends out a decoy drone. Toombs soon spots Peter clinging to the plane on one of the exterior monitors so he leaves the plane and engages him. In the course of the melee, a couple of the plane's engines are destroyed and or fall off, and the plane begins losing altitude. As the plane begins to descend dangerously close to the city, Peter webs one of the control surfaces on the wing and alters the plane's course just enough to avoid crashing into a populated area. With Toombs trying to retrieve something from the inside of the plane to justify his trouble, I'm not leaving empty-handed, he says, and peter still hanging on for dear life the plane crashes into the beach at coney island naturally hitting nobody in the process uh another anticlimactic fight uh, at least in my opinion the the pace of that fight is is just so frenetic and i thought it was really hard to see anything between you know the darkness of the sky and you know that weird strobing blinky light effect you know caused by the plane's cloaking technology I don't know. I just don't know what it is about the action sequences in this movie, but by and large, they seem really fast and messy, uh, sloppy even. Uh, They just seem really, you know, very quickly made. After all that, Toombs and Peter continue to fight on the ground, with Toombs coming within a hair's breadth of beating the living crap out of Peter. He's about to land a killing blow when he sees a crate of weapons that appears to have survived the crash. He leaves Peter to retrieve it. On the ground, Peter notices the vulture suit starting to glow and spark as it expends energy trying to pick up the massive crate. He yells out a warning to Toombs and even tries to web him in order to keep him from blowing up his suit. Naturally, Toombs resists. The suit fails and he falls to the ground and bursts into flames. Peter pulls Toombs out of the wreckage and drags him to safety. He then webs Toombs up with the rest of the weapons and leaves a note for Happy, letting him know that Spider-Man did this.
0: See, Peter is mostly capable. Also, Happy and Tony most definitely would have known that Peter did all that. I think if they thought this was some other crazy, extra-enhanced superhero, I think we'd have bigger problems to worry about.
1: Well, I just think it's funny because, you know, this is this is New York City, the capital of Marvel superheroes, and Peter is the only one who spotted this, you know, the only one who kind of was able to figure out on the fly that this plane is, you know, no pun intended, that this plane carrying weapons is about to be intercepted by a super criminal.
0: But I was thinking, since it's the Vulture, and Tony already told Peter to stay away, and he knows Peter's not going to stay away.
1: All right. Well, that's true. I can see that. When Peter and Ned return to school, he runs into Liz and her mom clearing out Liz's things. They are moving to Oregon. Her father doesn't want them in New York when his trial happens. Liz is disappointed in Peter for bailing on her at the dance, despite his numerous apologies. She says she hopes he straightens out whatever is going on with him. The decathlon team meets, having won the national championship. Mr. Harrington appoints Michelle to be the new team captain. She reveals that her friends call her MJ. And I suppose that was a clever way to give us MJ without giving us Mary Jane Watson. Bravo, Marvel and Sony. Happy shows up at school and brings Peter upstate to the Avengers compound. Tony shows Peter a brand new spider suit, the Iron Spider, for those of you who read the comics, and tells him that he's about to hold a press conference with about 50 reporters in which he plans to introduce Spider-Man as the newest Avenger. Peter, much to Tony's quiet astonishment, politely declines, saying that he thinks he needs to stick to the ground a little while longer and just be, as Tony had indicated earlier in the movie, a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man for a while. Needing to give the ravenous reporters something for their trouble, Tony proposes to Pepper Potts instead. Upon his return to Queens, Peter discovers that Tony has returned the original Stark spider suit to him. He puts it on, just as Aunt May walks in on him
0: honestly he should have told May when he rolled up after the fairy a- incident I'm surprised he didn't actually she deserves to know especially since she's like actually in charge of his well-being and everything
1: you know they've always made a point you know they've always made a point in the comics I there, there's probably some reality in the comics in which may did learn about Peter being Spider-man but for the most part by and large the main narrative that they try to pursue was that he does everything he can to keep. Aunt May from finding out that he's Spider Man because that's just how they've always done it. But I'm kind of gla- I'm kind of glad she finds out eventually. I think it it's they, you know they're not trying to you know duplicate the comics 100. percent I thought that was a very good creative choice, frankly. In a mid credit sequence, Gargan approaches Toombs in prison, having heard that Toombs knows Spider Man's identity. Toombs denies it.
0: A sign of things to come. Mm,
1: perhaps. In the comics, Mac Gargan is the Spider-Man villain known as the Scorpion. And if you look on him, I think he's got a Scorpion tattoo, like on his neck or something like that. So I'm pretty sure Sony did that for a reason. And of course, in the post credit sequence, the audience gets trolled by yet another Captain America PSA about patience. And how it sometimes leads to disappointment. For all those people who sat through 12 minutes of credits, hoping to see something really, really worthwhile. And all they got was Cap. But it was funny. And that is our movie. This is the part of the podcast where we talk about characters and actors. Starting with Tom Holland as Peter Parker slash Spider-Man.
0: I really like Tom Holland. Just in general. I think he's great as Spider-Man. I think starting to see him in other roles where he's not, you know, baby.
1: No, 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 no! You got to You gotta say. You gotta say like you did before. What did
0: I say before?
1: You, you, your your Texas accent came out, baby. Baby. Yes.
0: You gotta draw it out. No, but like he's.
1: Thank this, you for that, by the way.
0: In this movie, he is still baby though. Like he's young and inexperienced and confused and angry and sympathetic and all of those things. And frankly, obviously, we haven't seen the third movie yet so we don't know we'll know by the time we publish the podcast but he is one of the better characters that you get to see grow purely because we start with him at 15 and he has to grow because of that like he he obviously can't be 15 forever and I think obvious, you know of course you get a lot more growth in between 15 and 20 whatever than you do between you know 40 and 50, I feel like, anyway. From my personal experience, I feel like there was a lot of growing between 15 and 20, whatever. There's a lot of growing between 24 and 30. But I just think he's cute. I think he's great. I still think Andrew Garfield might be my preferred Spider Man, but he did a good job.
1: You know, comparisons to his predecessors, Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield, are almost inevitable, you know, when talking about Tom Holland, even though we're talking about three completely separate well, for now, you know, like you said, we haven't seen, we haven't seen no way home yet, uh, movie series, but I'm going to do it anyway to make a point in terms of the geeky put upon down on his luck factor alone. Tobey Maguire makes a pretty good Peter Parker, but I thought he was a pretty bland, mediocre Spider-Man. Andrew Garfield had Spider-Man's sort of quirky, jokey, wise-ass persona down pat. He did that really well, and I still liked him as Peter Parker. But you know, I kind of, I, I, I but you know, I liked him as Peter Parker, but I didn't think he was great. I thought he was kind of so-so. At, at times, he seemed a little too old to me. Tom Holland is probably my favorite of the three because he brings balance to the two sides of the character. You get a good sense of him as the smart somewhat awkward but but not over-the-top awkward teenager who's trying to do right by his Aunt May and grow into res- grow into a respectable adult and yet you still get that he's a kid and that he makes all of the attendant mistakes that, you know, a teenager makes and he has the expected lapses in judgment that, you know, that come with thinking you have ability and agency when you also happen to be lacking wisdom and maturity i think i think he's just a really well-rounded believable peter parker that way and yet he's also a fantastic spider-man um or or should i say he's an amazing (laughs) spider-man who jokes with the people he's fighting and spews out you know one-liners you know he displays an appropriate amount of you know, kind of joyful recklessness when he's, you know, swinging around the city and taking on the bad guys. I I do get a little tired of kind of the whiny. So, oh, my God, Mr. Stark, I'm in trouble kind of thing that that he does from time to time. But, you know, if if that's the worst I can say about him, then, you know, he's doing pretty good on the balance sheet overall. Um, Plus, it helps that that Holland is physically very up to the task. You know, he's a he's a dancer. And, you know, it shows, you know, with all those, you know, all those flips and, you know, all that cool agility stuff that he does. uh, I think he's I think he's a very, very, very good for this role.
0: I will say you bringing up the whiny like Mr. Stark, help me, Mr. Stark stuff. That earlier I said that I find Tom Holland's Peter Parker to be sympathetic and not pitiful. I feel like other people do read it as pitiful. And I say this because when I read fan fiction that's like Tom Holland, Peter Parker, it's so hard to find a fic that can capture that, like the sympathetic but not pitiful, because 99% of the fics that have Tom Holland as the Peter Parker character, he is so pitiful, it's like cringy. Like you, I can sense it in the first couple pages when I know that he's going to be just awful. And so I think that's one thing that the movies have been able to really balance, but for whatever reason, the fans can't really balance it. And maybe it's because they see him still as like this baby, tiny child, and they haven't realized that he's like a grown adult now, at least where we are in the universe.
1: That's interesting that you say that because I just sort of would assume that I would assume Maybe I'm wrong. That fanfic writers, if they're writing a Tom Holland Spider-Man story, would want to depict him as a sympathetic character, despite all of the, you know, the, oh my God, Mr. Stark, I'm in trouble. You know, I keep keep harping on that, so I, I feel like I may be, you know, defeating my own point, but... I don't know. I just, it's just interesting what you say about the fanfic cause I just it just it just seems that it would be e- it seems that it would be easy for people writing Tom Holland Spider Man fanfic to write him or you know not terribly difficult for them to be able to portray him as a sympathetic character and not just as kind of helpless and pathetic.
0: Yeah, I don't know. You got me. I wish that he wasn't helpless and p- pathetic in fix because I would like to read better fix, <laughs> frankly.
1: Well, you know. Well, you know, well, you know, Maybe you need to write that fanfic.
0: Mm.
1: Maybe you need to write that one. I'm serious. Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark slash Iron Man.
0: We can get mine out of the way real quick. I think he's a jerk, and I think he makes it the Tony Stark show, and that's one of the reasons why I don't like this movie. That's all I have.
1: Thus, thus proclaimeth. Go on with your the,
0: triad that I can see in the notes here.
1: The, <laughs> thus, thus, thus speaketh the Gospel of Emily Griswold. Well, um, I I, I happen to know a lot of people who don't like these movies, these Spider-Man movies, solely because of the presence of Tony Stark. Um, They argue that the whole point of Peter Parker, the whole point of Peter Parker is that he's always supposed to be on his own. He's supposed to be left to his own device. He's supposed to have been left to his own devices and wits to keep him alive. That's kind of how he is in the comics. Not relying on Tony Stark to give him high-tech suits in exchange for being his errand boy or whatnot. And like, it's like, you know, even though Tony isn't in far from home, you know, these same people would argue that Tony casts uh, such a big shadow, you know, over Peter in that movie that we still don't really get to see Peter operate on his own. Even in the, you know, the, 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 by now released, you know, no, no way home, I'm sure these same people are arguing that, you know, they've simply replaced Tony Stark with Stephen Strange. Um, For the most part, I disagree with all of that. First off, I understand the practical reasons for having Tony there. I recognize that from a marketing standpoint, you know, RDJ is a massive box office draw and that they need him to tie Spider-Man, a Sony character, as we talked about earlier to the MCU, but more importantly, I don't see a need and i talked about this earlier i, I don't see a need to be absolutely positively 100 percent faithful to the comics i don't have a problem with the idea of tony serving in some sort of mentor capacity vis-a-vis peter what i do have a problem with is how they did it like you said earlier it's 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 a real dick move to pluck peter out of queens drag him all the way to germany to fight half of the avengers and you know possibly get him killed in the process, and then just kind of unceremoniously dump him back home and say, don't call us, we'll call you. And, you know, that's why I asked earlier about Tony picking a kid to do this. You know, most grown-ups I like to think, could have handled that reasonably well. But, you know, doing that to a hormone driven angsty teen is just is just asking for trouble. You know, plus, you know, this is the point. In the franchise where I think I probably started to feel some RDJ fatigue set in. You know, he was in a Marvel movie every year from 2015 to 2019. He really didn't do that much in this movie. You know, except, you know, be the the Tony Starkiest Tony Stark that we've probably seen since the first Iron Man movie. Hence, one of your reasons for disliking this movie. Michael Keaton as Adrian Toombs slash The Vulture. As I said before, I, I love Michael Keaton. I've enjoyed his work, you know, going back to Mr. Mom back in the early 80s. If you're looking for a sympathetic villain who's an everyman trying to stick it to the 1% on behalf of the little guy, he's perfect for the role. And overall, I think he does a fabulous job. But, but as I said earlier, I kind of wish we got more of the everyman. We know he got screwed over by, you know, by the man at the beginning of the film, but he doesn't really talk about it again until later in the movie with Peter. And, you know, there, there are things that I'd like to know, like, you know, how he thought selling highly destructive weapons would be helping out the little guy. Or, you know, maybe he wasn't thinking that. Was he only concerned about getting rich himself? You know, I kind of would like to have heard more about this. As good as Keaton is in this film, I thought there was a lot of wasted potential. Adrian Toomes could easily have been in the pantheon of truly memorable MCU villains. But in my opinion, he he falls a little short here.
0: Until tonight, I thought that Michael Keaton played the dad in Juno, Mac McGuff. But that is J.K. Simmons, and they look very, very similar. I pulled up his IMDb page.
1: I never seen Juno. J.K. Simmons looks like Michael Keaton.
0: <laughs> to me, anyway. I'm hmm. really bad at like telling the difference okay. in people. He was in Whiplash also, which I feel like is a movie that you would like.
1: Yeah, I, I I've heard about it. I, I probably would. I love J.K. Simmons. Um so you know, I but yeah, you know, I haven't, haven't 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 seen Whiplash yet, but
0: Alright. But we're not talking about J.K. Simmons. <laughs> we're talking about Michael Keaton. I thought that was funny though. Um But I liked him. I think I liked that he is one of the few villains that we have that isn't being motivated by someone else. Like, he's motivated by himself for himself. He doesn't have a benefactor. He doesn't have anything like that. He is just a bad guy doing his own thing. And I appreciate that.
1: Well, it's, it's you know, it's it, it, it kind of, you, you get the impression by the time all is said and done that he's in it for the, he's just in it, to, you know, he's in it for the money. But I guess I kind of, you know, it's almost like we were kind. Of, I felt I felt kind of misled a little bit because it's kind of like we were, you know, it's almost like there was sort of this, you know, upstairs downstairs, you know, kind of fight the one percent kind of thing going on at work here. When you know, it's that's probably not that's not the case at all. He 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 wants to get rich himself, and he seems quite you know, quite willing to step on anyone he can in order to do it. And, you know, you have to question whether or not that makes him any better than the people than the people who screwed him over in the first place. Zendaya as Michelle slash MJ. We don't see a lot of Zendaya in this movie, but I think she does a great job right off the bat of conveying to the audience what kind of person Michelle is. She, you know, she's this offbeat, do-her-own-thing kind of rebel with a saucy and sarcastic attitude about a lot of things. And by the end of the movie, it's clear that she's being set up as a possible love interest for Peter. And I rather like that because, you know, after after Kirsten Dunst's Mary Jane Watson and Emma Stone's Gwen Stacy, Zendaya's MJ is kind of a, a breath of fresh air for me.
0: I was a little worried. And this might be something, again, that I don't like about Homecoming versus the other two movies is that zendaya mj is kind of this version of like a manic pixie dream girl situation like because she's so offbeat and because she's so you know she's talking about going to a protest and you know reading the book about slaves building dc and not wanting to go up into the monument and all these like cool subversive things that make her this like idealized version of herself. And I think they handled it way better in the next movie, of course. But that was one of the things I didn't like about this movie is that it's like she could be fun and cool and witty without being manic pixie dream girl.
1: Is manic pixie dream girl like one of those phrases that I thought it just that gets used a lot in certain circles but I've just never heard of.
0: Let me look it up. Here we go. Let's say you're a soulful, brooding male hero living a sheltered, emotionless existence. If only someone could come along and open your heart to the great, wondrous adventures of life. Have no fear. The Manic Pixie Dream Girl is here to give new meaning to the male hero's life. She's stunningly attractive, energetic, high on life, full of wacky quirks and idiosyncrasies, generally including childlike playfulness, often with a touch of wild hair dye. She's inexplicably obsessed with our stuffed shirt, stuffed shirt hero on whom she will focus her crazy antics until he learns to live freely and love madly. The manic pixie dream girl may be featured as the second love in order to break the character out of the morning after.
1: Yeah, she doesn't seem quite. She doesn't seem entirely like that to me. It's there
0: a little bit, though.
1: It's there a little bit, but she's not. She's doesn't. You know, she's not. She's not really focused on Peter in that first movie, and she doesn't seem particularly. I mean, what you describe kind of sounds like you know, open your eyes to the world, and she seems very you know kind of you know she seems kind (laughs) of jaded you know. To me, you know, oh, we're being oppressed, you know. But it's (laughs) also like
0: the way I sort of usually read it is because she's so, like, she's doing things that no one would ever think to do. Like, she's subversive, kind of thing. And that makes her more idolized to the point that she's not a real person. Like, because it's a trope and because there's nothing more complicated under that. That she just becomes she gets put on this pedestal. Like the character, you know, the type, the manic Pixie Dream Girl type gets put on a pedestal of being super special and different and zany and has to make everybody else zany too, but not too zany because she's the one who's special. Like it's just bad writing.
1: (laughs) What do you think what do you think keeps what do you think keeps Michelle from completely falling into that?
0: I think because she does sort of have stuff to do. In the next movie. And I don't think she's, I don't think she's doing it to be zany. Because sometimes it feels like, I don't know. Maybe I'm not explaining this super well. I just, like, it. I was worried that that would be how she would turn out. Mm -hmm. Because of the way she acted in Homecoming, where she was like, I don't have any friends. Like, I'm too cool for that. Mm -hmm. But, like, cool and aloof, but, like... I actually really want you to pay attention to me because I'm special kind of thing.
1: All right. Hang on. We should hang on to that and we should come hang on to that and revisit that when we review Far From Home. That's interesting. Jacob Batalone as Ned. In a lot of ways, Ned is the perfect best friend. He's always got your back. You can tell him almost anything. He checks you when you're wrong about something. And like in any close friendship, he and Peter sometimes fight about things. But when it comes down to it, they have each other's best interests in mind. I think Battleone gives us kind of a wonderfully realistic best friend in Ned. And his friendship with Peter is, I think, easily one of the best things about the movie. Um, maybe one of the best things about the MCU in general. Um, you know, Their wordless their wordless reunion at the end of Endgame is, I think, one of the most beautiful moments in all of the MCU. Marissa Tomei as Aunt May. <sighs> <laughs> okay. Seriously, um you know, just like I had no problem with Tony with with having Tony being a mentor, I thought it a rather clever idea to have Aunt May be considerably younger than she's been portrayed in the past. Uh, creatively, it opens up a lot of fun avenues for her. You think of, you know, the, the waiter in the Thai restaurant flirting with her and then you know, her relationship with Happy and Far From Home. And yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not going to lie. Marissa, Marissa Tomei is still hot as hell at 56. 57 when you finally hear this as her birthday is tomorrow, December 4th. Happy birthday, Marissa.
0: <laughs> she reminds me of one of my co-workers. Who's, like, just really bouncy and fun and, like, wants to be sort of, not like the life of the party, but wants to be at the party for sure.
1: John Favreau as Happy Hogan. It's Happy Hogan. Again. I don't have a whole lot to say. Um, John Favreau is really good at showing his annoyance at having to be Peter's minder. He'll have a lot more to do in Far From Home, and that's kind of pretty much all I have to say about that. Laura Harrier as Liz Emily did you know that Laura Harrier is older than you she's 31 and you know god she she honestly and truly looks like she's 15 in this movie and that was only a few years ago um, what can I say she she really does remind me she reminds me of girls I've had crushes on in the past when I was a kid you know kind of smart and pretty with with a certain sense of you know unattend- unattainability about them but you know but very kind at the same time
0: i liked her i just can't stop thinking about like how much it would suck to have your dad be a supervillain and like an arguably not great one at that because he loses pretty catastrophically in the end
1: it's funny you mentioned that cuz i was i was wondering you know do you do you think do you think you know do you think liz and her mom know what adrian has been up to all this time do you think they know what he does or is it kind of like this you know is it kind of like you know uh, like a you know is it like you know carm you know carmella soprano where she just kind of you know kind of kind of quietly sort of feigns ignorance and looks the other way or could they be honestly or or could it be that they're completely clueless and they have no idea that they're that this per their their husband slash dad is you know selling weapons
0: i think the mom probably knows for sure but i don't think liz knows and i feel like the mom knows because you kind of have to know at Mm. some point
1: tony Revolori as flash thompson every peter parker needs a flash thompson to bully him around a bit but unlike past portrayals of the character this one isn't a jock and i thought that was a really interesting choice it's clear he comes from wealth and privilege and he clearly uses that as a basis for his abuse of Peter in some ways. I think Tony Revolori plays a, a good, you know, he plays a good a-hole in this movie. Although I particularly like some of the hints they drop about him in Far From Home, you know, with regard to, you know, why he is the way that he is and, you know, kind of hints about his family. And I'm I'm kind of hoping that they touch on that in uh, in No Way Home.
0: I think, again, I think I liked the Flash in... Andrew Garfield's versions and I'm specifically thinking about um when Ben dies and Peter goes to school the next day and Flash comes up and naturally you would assume that Flash is going to be a jerk but and like Andrew Garfield turns around and he's about to like go at him and Flash is like no I get it like this time I'm not being a jerk this time I'm just being a real person and I always really liked that because I think you know bully like you said with like what we know about this flash in far from home there's always a reason for it you're not just a jerk to be a jerk and so i think that's something that is nice about flash in sort of both versions is that there's got to be a reason
1: i need to go back i haven't seen the andrew garfield films in a very long time i remember really liking amazing spider-man 1 I hated 2. Uh, I I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, I despised Amazing Spider-Man 2. I thought that movie was horrible. Um I think I, I think I actually liked, you know, Spider-Man 3 with Tobey Maguire better, and that's saying quite a bit because that movie was garbage too. But we'll save that for another podcast perhaps. Donald Glover as Aaron Davis.
0: I do really like Donald Glover. I think he's hilarious and also really go- really good at any sort of role that he plays. I prefer him in The Martian personally, but I think he does well with what little he has in this movie and being Mr. Criminal.
1: For those of you who may not be as familiar with the comics, that nephew that Aaron refers to in this movie is in all likelihood none other than Miles Morales. Aaron is his uncle, and if you've seen the fantastic animated film Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, Aaron Davis is voiced by Academy Award winner Mahershala Ali, who will be playing Blade in the MCU at some point in the future. I am so looking forward to seeing Blade. That's gonna—I think that's gonna be really, really neat. Music. I like to talk about film scores. Uh, I like to talk about this one because it's done. The film score—the score for this film—is done by Michael Giacchino, who is quickly becoming one of my favorite film composers. Despite his frequent collaborations with one J.J. Abrams, who, as those of you who know me are very well aware, is like number one on my list of mortal enemies for various reasons. This is his second score in the MCU, his first being for Doctor Strange, which we'll be reviewing in the not-too-distant future. While the score for this film is not one of my favorites, I still like it very much, as Giacchino is very good at establishing memorable themes and leitmotif for characters, I mean, I happen to like his score for Far From Home a lot more. And, you know, as I've said before, I love his score for Doctor Strange, um, which we will talk about a couple shows from now. I do particularly like, at the very beginning of the movie, when they're rolling the Marvel credits, how they, how Giacchino works in the, you know, again, I don't want to hum it because I don't want to get sued by Disney or whoever owns the rights, uh, how the, he does sort of the, you know, the, uh, the his version of the, you know spider-man spider-man does whatever spider can theme from the old old animated series that's a very clever thing they do at the beginning of the movie and there you have it folks our review of spider-man homecoming uh stay tuned uh, at some point in the not too distant future we will eventually get around to our 20th can you believe that 20 20th episode emily in which we will review guardians of the galaxy volume 2 which will be uh, a very interesting show f- for, for many reasons, not the least of which, it is one of the few MCU movies that uh, you have not seen, if I'm not mistaken.
0: I have not seen it. Also, wouldn't it technically be episode 21? Because we started out on zero. Yeah, and I mean the numbers are right, but we started out on episode zero. So, so this technically is technically
1: it'll be twenty one. Technically, oh, so it'll be episode twenty, but it will be our twenty first episode.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, I stand corrected. Okay, episode episode. So we're 20. already on
0: twenty. Technically, this is our this if is this our is 20, 20. Te-
1: Congratulations on twenty episodes, Emily.
0: Thank you, Woo-hoo.
1: thank you. And congratulations on turning thirty. Mm-hmm. As by the time y'all hear, as you, by the time y'all hear this, Emily will be beginning her fourth decade of existence well that's that's it for this episode folks thank you so much for listening take care be kind to each other and be safe out there and we will see you later with guardians of the galaxy volume two until then have a good night we'll see you later bye That's a wrap. <sighs>